0: Episode number 197 of the Canadian Prepper podcast. We are recording on March the 5th, 2023. My name is Eric. I'm the host of the show based in Southern Ontario, a hunter, target shooter, ham radio operator, and computer geek. As a first responder, I witnessed an over-reliance on emergency services during major events and started a small preparedness preparedness company, if I could talk, to help people get better prepared for at least 72 hours, if not longer
1: and my name is jeff i am based in central ontario i'm a target shooter ham radio operator general overall handyman and weather nerd
2: i'm pierre i'm a tactical beard owner based t-shirt guru government critiqued, and the reason we normally have to hit the explicit buzz <laughs>
0: All right. And this evening we've got uh, Patrick Hardy with us. He's the uh, founder and CEO of Hydropipe Disaster Management, uh, the largest full-service small uh, small business and family disaster management company in the U.S. A certified Emergency Manager, Certified Risk Manager, Master Business Continuity Professional, and uh, FEMA Master of uh, Exercise. Uh, he's a uh, has an extensive experience working in the public, private and nonprofit sectors in disaster management from micro businesses to Fortune 500 companies. Uh, Patrick was considered the world's leading expert in small business disaster preparedness in the summer of 2012. He became the youngest person and the first business owner ever selected as the uh, national private sector representative for the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA. Uh, He's worked with tens of thousands of organizations and families, including uh, high net worth family offices. Uh, He's been featured uh, expert on family disaster preparedness on Good Morning America, PA Live, NBC, and CBS affiliates throughout the US. Uh, A seasoned disaster professional, he's assisted the American Red Cross during multiple major activations, including the Emergency Operations Center at a site uh, director at Louisiana State EOC as a shelter manager, He's been a cross-trained and certified hazmat emergency communications, homeland uh, security policy, and terrorism. Uh, Patrick began his career in EMS Ambulance First Response, eventually becoming a visiting instructor to the National EMS Academy's paramedic program and wrote the chapters on disaster preparedness, terrorism, and weapons of mass destruction for the new Advanced Emergency Medical Technician Textbook, for the U.S., uh, sorry, use in the U.S. uh, national uh, curriculum. Uh, His first book, Design Any Disaster, The Revolutionary Blueprint to Master Your Next Crisis or Emergency, is slated to be released this Tuesday, March the 7th. You can also uh, pre-order it on Amazon. I'll throw a link in the notes here. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you very
3: much for having me. I appreciate it. Looking forward to the two tonight. That's going to be fantastic.
1: And if you uh, want to support the show and keep the Canadian Prepper Podcast on the air, buy some swag. We have both the Canadian Prepper Podcast t-shirt and the Tactical Velcro patch. You can find them both at www.prepperpodcast.ca. All proceeds help keep the lights on and the backup generator fueled.
2: If you're enjoying the show, please take a few minutes and like us on Facebook and submit a review on iTunes. Also, we want your feedback, good or bad, or just a topic you want us to cover. You can email us at feedback at
0: prepperpodcast.ca. Hey, you got through all of it this week. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well done. Well done. (laughs) All right. So we've got some emergency preparedness content for you in this episode. I know that is strange for uh, episode 197. Uh, we're going to start off with some recent news. We're going to update you on our personal preps. Then we're going to get into the main topic. We've got an interview with uh, Patrick from uh, Hydro-P uh, Disaster Management. So it's going to be a great episode. So moving into the news. So I've got a article here from HighRiver.ca and it's touching on a High River advancing emergency preparedness through staff training and local partnerships. So it's kind of neat. Again, I like to touch on some local things uh, in the news if we can, instead of the big uh, multinational stuff. So uh, this is a a town in Alberta and uh, they're just starting to up their preparedness and get some people trained up and get some partnerships established for being ready for uh, a big major disaster and making sure that everybody's trained up ahead of time. So it's always nice to see.
2: Yes.
0: And I've got a... uh News
1: article here, um, again, kind of around the uh, preparedness part of it. Uh, there are still all kinds of people stranded from the California blizzard that went on. Um, it's, I was going to say strange, but it's not strange that the uh, local uh, officials are now admitting that they were unprepared for this epic mountain blizzard that have left many people strapped, sorry, trapped and desperate. Mm-hmm. Um they, uh, it says the San Bernardino County officials acknowledge they were unprepared for these back-to-back storms leaving many people stranded for more than a week amid gas leaks and diminishing food supplies and that the snow plows they usually used to clear the mountain roads were ineffective and um, a bunch of communities, they're still snowed in. Uh, just to give you some numbers, um, in the San Bernardino Mountains, um, a town of uh, Running Springs got 12 feet of snow. Big Bear Lake got 11 feet and Lake Arrowhead got a little over nine feet. Uh, so, you know, they're still, uh, they're still digging out, trying to get things out there. Um, I do have a little issue they put in with uh, one of the wordings that they put in the the article. I think they were kind of trying to say, well, it was our fault, but it wasn't. Um, they Complained that, well, we didn't know this blizzard was coming for weeks. We only had 24 to 36 hours notice. Um, That's that. The main storm came on a Wednesday night to Thursday. And on our podcast on the Sunday night, I was already alluding to the fact that there was the big potential for this blizzard to come. So they knew it was coming. They just uh, didn't think it was probably going to be as bad as it was. Um, You know, part of the other problem is they've, uh, they've got areas where they're, they're, dropping food or um, dropping supplies and stuff but somebody made the comment yeah okay it's two miles from where I live and there's four feet of snow on the road how am I supposed to get there to get my supplies so again it goes back to again like always we say gotta have stuff stuff on in supply and you know we usually say 72 hours but I like to say if you don't have two weeks of stock where you're buried um, you don't have enough so
3: And i know a lot about that actually because my parents live in san bernardino uh they used to live at big bear lake right near uh lake arrowhead now they live at um in a town called oak Glen, california it is uh it's about 3500 feet um where big bear lake is about 7400 7400 feet so uh they got you know they called me you know i didn't hear from them for you know for a couple of days you know i texted them saying you know be prepared the usual things And they said, well, um, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. We didn't, you know, we hadn't called or anything. You know, we got about six feet worth of snow. And I said, and my father is, he's a very short guy. He's, he's he's about five foot five. And, um, and he said, uh, I walked outside and he literally stepped into, because they, they actually live on a sloped hill. And at the top of it, he put his foot down and he literally said the snow was still over his head. It was over six feet. So he said it was wow. one of those claustrophobic experiences he's had in, in his entire life and, and and keep in mind this is somebody who's from hawaii originally <laughs> my dad's from hawaii so he's like i'm not used to anything like this i've never seen snow wow. like that before and they said that literally people were um they, they live in a um a higher-end community and they were saying people literally were taking you know like the normal shovels people have mm-hmm. they were just using like shovels to shovel the snow off because That's an area that they don't necessarily always get that enough snow where they would have to plow their own driveways Jeez, wow
1: yeah they were they were saying um when i was mentioning it on the podcast before they were they were calling for snow they said in areas that hadn't seen a flake in 40 years so
0: wow oh yeah that'd be a definite shock yeah
3: well yeah and you know i I was saying to my parents i was like so what's what's so i said you know you guys doing okay you have everything and now they're going yeah it's only one problem i said what is it they're like we can't get our starbucks so we can't have any of that so now i know this is a disaster because i can't even get uber eats to drive up
0: here <laughs> yeah if uber eats and starbucks is closed you know you got a problem yep, yep. <laughs> awesome all right well let's uh let's move on to what we've done lately for preps
1: Uh, I haven't done much. Uh, I did some food prep. I messed around with my canner again, just trying to get myself all uh, all prepped up for that. Um, Yeah, that's about it for me for this week. Kind of slow.
0: Fair enough. Uh, For myself, I've been playing around. I know this is going to be shocking for everybody, uh, playing around with some ham radio stuff. Uh, So this little guy here, little handheld. I've been uh, playing around with uh, APRS, Automatic Packet Reporting System, Uh, so it's uh, literally just some data packets over radio frequency that'll send things like location, you can send text messages. Uh, I sent a text message actually to Scott who decided to not show up tonight uh, from it and he's able to reply back to me just uh, because why not? Uh, it's kind of fun to, to goof around with and could really be useful in an emergency type situation. <laughs> Kyle in the chat there, yeah, Radio Talk, shocker, I know, right? Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's kind of neat to play around with because if I'm in an area where there is no cell reception, but I can still access a repeater that has this technology available to it, I can still send a text message. Mm-hmm. It can go to anybody. They don't have to be a ham radio operator. It doesn't matter. And they can reply back to me again without needing a ham radio license. Mm-hmm and uh, then also it does some other neat stuff with uh, with gps locations weather locations all that kind of stuff so just kind of diving into it now and uh i'm sure i'll have more updates on it later but uh, i've been playing around with it for about a week now and it's yeah it's been fun so so is it a is it a
2: uh more specific thing that you mentioned that specific repeaters might have to have something is that yeah. a common thing for most repeaters
0: not all of them. It's, uh, it's actually more popular in the States from what I've seen. There's a lot more repeaters uh, in the U.S. versus Canada. There, there's a couple here in town, but there's a lot of ham radio guys in town here too that uh, like to play around with all kinds of everything. And there's a uh, there's a repeater here that's uh, pretty close that I can access and utilize. Uh, after that, anything north of here, they're they're spread out. Uh, and not all of them are, are publicly posted either. I'll find out as I'm uh, exploring the province with this now. Uh, it, it transmits everybody uses the same frequency so it doesn't matter where uh, where i am it's always going to be the same frequency so i'll uh, i'll find other repeaters as i go if there's other people that I just set them up and not publish them then i'll be able to document it as i travel around but um, nice. for the most part it's uh, yeah it's it's different technology that's not on every single repeater but it's on uh, it's on some in the area here that's pretty cool yeah it's fun yeah, it's uh, yeah, I see Scott's in the live chat. Didn't want to join us tonight in the show, but uh, yeah, it's like T nine on my flip phone. hundred percent, it is like T nine uh, for those of you that remember T nine. <laughs> but uh, it's a form of communication that can be used in uh, in a uh, in a bad yeah. situation, right? So, and it's, uh like I said, you can do all kinds of GPS stuff as well. So I can, if I want, put my location up on a map that's accessible on the internet. Uh, I can contact other. Uh, apRS uh, radios in the area and send my location or send messages back and forth just to those radios so if you do have other people in your group that are uh, ham licensed you can shoot messages back and forth if you're uh, if you're within uh, frequency range of each other so it's kind of neat something different to play with and yes I'm a radio nerd I get it hmm? yes um, we've
2: got not too too much either uh, pretty busy with work. Um, got a little bit of food prep done for when me and Mel go off to our honeymoon for us, as well as the daughters that she's staying, um, wedding preps. Oh my God. We have so much stuff in the house. (laughs) Um, and then working on some (laughs) extra computer skills, um, computer work for work. Um, so it looks like a few things are changing. So a few extra things. So dabbling on the IT side, which is kind of fun and confusing at the same time. Do I have an episode for you?
0: Yes, yeah. <laughs> we did a cybersecurity episode uh, a little while ago, Patrick, and it's uh, it's freaked Pierre out ever since.
1: Yeah, he's Pierre's yeah. never been the same.
0: <laughs> nope. nope. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, with that, let's uh, let's get right into it because I know everybody's probably itching to, to hear from Patrick and what he's got to say. And uh, I know I'm certainly interested to hear about uh, about your history and your book and, and everything that you've got to uh, to share with us. But uh, let's start out with uh, some of the basics. If you could just tell us about your company and your preparedness journey.
3: Well, it all started when I was on the swim team in high school. That's where it all began. Uh, I was swimming. I It's so funny because I used to swim the 500 and the 1,000, which uh, just in case you're not re- really familiar with swim teams, those are the two most unpopular events for anyone <laughs> to swim in because you're basically doing... Laps and more yeah. laps hmm. and more laps, and all they do is they put this little—it's like a sign—and they slip it in the water to let you know what lap you're in. Because I can't tell you the number of times I'd be swimming, I'm like, "What what lap am I on? Oh, I'm on lap 37. Okay, good. At least I know. I got to keep pacing myself till I get to lap 66. Um, and so at the end of the at the end of the swim season, uh, one of my coaches said, "Hey, listen." There's a bunch of guys who are going out to become a lifeguard. You want to try being a lifeguard? And I said, okay, I'll do it. So of course I went, and all these guys who were, and I'm, and I'm, I'm serious. The guys I swam with were incredible swimmers. I mean, these guys were really good on the 50, the 100, so really short distances. But to, to but to be a lifeguard, you had to swim across a lake. You had to run across the beach you had to go in the water and you had to swim across the lake and of all these guys who were like almost olympic quality swimmers i was the only one that made it and so um i ended up becoming a lifeguard that season so i was a lifeguard and at the end of the season a bunch of the lifeguards said you know we're thinking about going to emt school so like all right i'll go do that so i went and became an emt and so on and so on and i went to college and um ended up happening was, you know, I graduated um, and I discovered that I didn't have a real cause because I studied political science, international political science, and because I wanted to become a professor originally. And so I, I I kind of examined it and said, you know what? Everyone has a cause. They want to abolish nuclear weapons or they want to end world hunger or they want to end genocide. And I said, I don't, I don't have one of those. And then right after Hurricane Katrina happened, I said, you know what? that's solvable in my lifetime. I think that's solvable. If I commit to true emergency preparedness, that can be solved. And I don't think that the government running everything for people is the answer. So if we get some fresh ideas on it. So I wrote a letter to the governor of Louisiana. I said, listen, I'm a nobody. You have no idea who I am. I am I graduated from college. I did this. I've, and I would love to work for you. I got a phone call and the governor said, um, uh, the, or uh, so someone, for, someone for the governor's staff said, okay, great. Would love to have you. So why don't you come move here? Uh, we'll give you room, board, $1,500 a month. And uh, you work for us 100 hours a week. How's that sound? And I wow. said, sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> when you're 20, hey, when you're 22, yep. that sounds Sounds great. fantastic. So 22. you go out and yeah. you're like-
1: 100 hours a week?
3: Yeah, I was working. I worked for the chief of staff. And so after Hurricane Katrina, I mean, you can imagine the frenetic activity in Baton Rouge. I mean, just the atmosphere and the pressure that was being placed on people. Right. So there was, I mean, I was working and because, you know, like you, Eric, I'm a ham operator too. So, uh, you know, I, I told them, I said, I can do anything you want me to do. And they would say, Hey, would you do a shift in the EOC? And then I trained with the Red Cross. Hey, would you go be a shelter manager for a little while? Or, you know, would you do that? And I literally said yes to anything they wanted. And it was the best education I ever got. Every single hour I worked, I learned a ton about how government interacts with the private sector, how you work with a population that's in sort of great transit and upheaval. What do you do when civil administration is absent? I mean, One issue, as a matter of fact, I ended up doing a rotation with the attorney general's office and get this. One of the biggest problems they had was what do you do if you get bit by your neighbor's dog and you can't sue them because small claims court is closed? So these are the kinds of strange (laughs) things that you think in a disaster, you're worried about that. But you know what? Eventually it stops being a disaster for everybody. And it's like I have to live my normal life somehow. Yeah. And so when these yeah. courts are absent, these are things that emergency management has to answer. So I ended up going back to there. I went to graduate school in Europe I op- and I opened a business. Um, I won a business prize when I was in Great Britain and I came back and I opened a business and I started with one client and I have over 300,000 small business clients. So wow. Um, wow. I, I work with restaurants and bars and nursing homes and underwater sea cable operations and alligator farms and you name it, Eric, you name it. <laughs> I've written disaster plans for it. Mobile home parks, awesome. RVs. It's awesome. It's the coolest job in the world. I love my job.
0: It's cool. That's awesome. Now, are you working only with, uh, like, U.S. companies and U.S. Uh, citizens, or are you branched out internationally, or how does that work?
3: I... About five years ago, I, I'd worked a little bit internationally. We've done some work in Europe and so your European companies would reach out to us. Some Canadian companies I actually work with a number of companies based in the U.S. that have operations in Canada. So okay. that's particularly on the East Coast where a lot of them are over there. So but about five years ago, we got an email from a business. Um, they are a hair salon in Zimbabwe. Really? Don't ask me how I ever got on their radar. But they called and said, We know that you know how to do this. Would you write our disaster plan, please? And I was like, No, my disaster planners to hire a number of planners. I go, My disaster planners, you're not right. You are not writing this plan. I am writing this even though I've written plans in a long time. I just go, I'm writing this plan because I want to say I wrote a disaster plan for a hair salon in, in Zimbabwe. And one of the biggest threats, actually, you, you guys will actually find this interesting. The biggest threat, can, can you guess what you think the biggest threat to their business is? Do you want to take, take a guess? Take a guess. What they identified, they said, this is the biggest threat we face to our business. So what do you think?
0: Hmm. Take a crack at it. Let's say an animal of some sort. Not overly- Inflation. Infl- what? Inflation. Inflation?
2: Because
3: Zimbabwe has hyperinflation. Right. Zimbabwe, it's like one dollar is like one billion. Zimbabwe, I'm not even sure what the, what the currency type is there, but they dealt with hyperinflation. So we literally developed a plan to help them to learn how to barter. So I said, OK, if you deal with hyperinflation, here's how you barter. And I wrote a continuity plan that shows them how to barter for hair services in Zimbabwe.
2: <laughs> that's that's awesome. That's pretty good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Talk it's about cool. the story. <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> yeah. Disaster play is not, not
3: allowed to be this fun, but it <laughs> just is. Hey. Uh,
0: no, that's, yeah, that's Zimbabwe. Cool. Zimbabwe. Any other um, international stories, or is that. Uh... It's like kind of the furthest? Yeah, I work gone? with a
3: beekeeping operation. I work with a, a beekeeping operation in South America. So I work, work with a number of beekeepers, and um, one of the things was was that one of the apiaries I worked at. That's that's what a yard is called, an apiary. So I had an apiary I was working with in Louisiana, and okay. and this guy calls me up one day and he goes, "Listen, I own a, I own an apiary down in South America, um, in Brazil." And so he says, "You know, would you be willing to write a plan for these guys?" And I said, yeah, of course, I, I wanna write a plan for a for, for an apiary in Brazil. I, I'm, I'm up for that. <laughs> and so he says, okay. And um, and so I, I didn't actually go there. I actually haven't visited there before, but they took pictures, they did the usual things. We figured out their evacuation routes. And um, I love what Kyle says, cause that's totally true. You gotta have a ton <laughs> of EpiPens, man. I mean, you gotta, but I was talking to them, <laughs> I was talking to these guys about I mean, literally running a bee yard, you have to have all kinds of suits. And then um, one of the disasters that these guys deal with, the biggest disaster a bee yard has to deal with is what's called requeening. It means that if the queen of a hive actually dies, that essentially signs the death warrant. And I didn't know, know this, um, and I live right by UC Davis, which is a very big um, uh, bee in agriculture university. but. If the queen dies, that's essentially a death warrant for the rest of the hive. And right now with colony collapse syndrome and some other things, I did not know this. There are what we call queen brokers that that is all they do for a living. They are brokers you can call and they will literally ship you a queen and that like literally a bee. They will ship to you and that queen, you will try to reintroduce it. And I learned the protocols of how to place a queen bee and introduce them, introduce a queen into a new hive so that that is the ultimate continuity plan. I said, you know what? I was able to supplement nature somehow (laughs) i just felt like you were just like i was fixing this gap in mother nature somehow but it was just really cool but it's these these kinds of continuity solutions i just love it so much i just love being creative and trying to find unique ways of saying how can i make your business more efficient i don't care what it is you you do do for a living whatever it is you just try and find a really cool way to say this is how i can make sure that you you can uh, make it through any disaster
0: that's interesting. And I can see how that'd be fun, a fun challenge too, because you'll have all kinds of different companies and different individuals coming to you with a very unique set of circumstances and operating procedures. And then you get to say, okay, what's the worst possible thing that's going to happen? And how do we fix it and be ready for it? That's awesome.
3: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and on top of it, it's just fun to learn. I, I tell you, I'm, and I know this is true. this is as true in Canada as it is in the U.S., it never ceases to amaze me how people have figured out how to make a living in this world. I have, I just, I can't believe people's creativity. It just, it blows me away. The things that people have discovered about how to make a living in this world, I just go, okay, we'll do it, you know, whatever it is. Because I mean, that's the reason why, why I really started my business originally, because I said, listen, you know, after Hurricane Katrina, Walmart has Billions, billions with a B, billions of dollars to recover their stores. Big, massive operations have access to public equity markets. Small business has access to what? An SBA loan, Small Business Administration loan. That's in the U.S. That, that, that's primarily where they get their loans from, right? These are right. like $30,000 loans. I go, a $30,000 loan to reopen a restaurant? I mean, I worked in a restaurant when I was a teenager. That's not enough. I mean, when you're dealing with these kinds of things. So I said, there has to be an avatar and an apostle for small businesses, and it just doesn't exist. So since it doesn't exist, I'm going to invent one. <laughs> that's going to be me. <laughs> And so I just decided, and I just—it's just been a really fun, fun journey. I just like you guys, when you're like, you know, when you're talking with people, people's interesting lifestyles, right. and you just say, "How can I develop a disaster framework that works for this particular family, or this particular company, or this particular person's life circumstances?" That just what makes it so much fun. Nice.
0: That's awesome. Uh, I didn't mention before, but I'll, I'll take a second to mention it now. Uh, everybody who's watching live, if you've got questions for Patrick, feel free to to throw them in the uh, the chat, and uh, we'll do our best to get them to him to uh, to get you an answer. Uh, as far as I know, this will probably be one that uh, a lot of people want to know is what what kind of advice do you give out to uh, to new people that are coming to you saying, "Hey, you know, I'm a small family, or uh, you know, we're just trying to get started out in this disaster preparedness thing." Uh, What's some, some basic advice that you like to give people that ask you who are just starting out?
3: First thing I tell them is I say, I want you to tell me physically, mentally, spiritually, socially, and financially, what are the most important things that make your family continue to operate? Because what I try to define with families is what are the needs and what are the wants? because I try to develop and identify what are the needs. Once I've developed the needs, it doesn't mean I ignore the wants, because I say to people like, actually, I was joking around with my parents. I said, you know what, what we, one of the things we should have done is we should have actually given you a cappuccino maker because, or a latte maker, because if you can't get your Starbucks during a blizzard, and if that to you is enough of a want, and you guys understand this very well, food and drink, Getting the things that you eating food that you're familiar with, eating food that is important to you, drinking things that are familiar to you, and ensuring that your body stays in the same rhythm that it does day in and day out are just as important. I actually have a client; they're 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 fanatical chess players. They they love playing. They're they're not pros or any of are grandmasters or whatever. Not you know right uh, any of that. They're not Gary Kasparov, but they love to play chess and they play chess online. Uh, with people. And I say, well, if there's a power outage and you can't do it and you can't play chess, would that bother you? And they said, yes. So we figured out a way so that they could play correspondence chess via text message. And I said, that's your backup. And Mm. some people would say, what? Of all the things and disasters you're worried about, they're chess playing. (laughs) And I said, to them, chess is important. Same with people who have certain, th- you know, they have certain hobbies or things that are important to them. People who have, uh, you know, their uh, faith is really important right. to them. Right. We try to develop backup systems in case they, they said they have the spiritual support that is important to them. So I don't just talk about, and I know it's important. I know it's important to talk about things physically, make sure we have food, water, all that stuff. But what I tell people is, is don't touch any of that stuff. Let's figure out first what your wants and your needs are, then let's start defining what we need to get for you because otherwise if we just go to the store and say you know let's just get the red backpack let's just buy that and then hey we're prepared and i say to them that's not necessarily preparedness for you because then what i end up doing is i interrogate them a little bit and i say you know for your three-year-old what's important for them is important to them that they have this they have this toy they have this thing and they go oh yeah is that including your disaster program oh no i don't i don't have any of that well we have to include those things. Same with pets and and, and and everything else. So whatever's important to them, that's the first thing I do and I tell people is take an inventory of it. And I talk about it in the book, exactly how to do that is to how to
1: take an inventory of your life and evaluate what's important to you. And, and I, I, I'm up on that 100% from, from the, the aspect of familiarity and what it is you do and just keep doing that. And just the amount of stress that's going to take away when something is bad is going on. If it's a 10-minute, I'm away from this bad thing that's going on, and I'm going to sit down and have my cappuccino or my Starbucks or whatever. I'm going to play my chess game, and I'm going to get my mind off of what's going on, and I'm going
0: to refocus. I mean, that that can mean the world to somebody. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point that you've got, of just focusing on some of the wants and the comfort things. Because in a really Mm -hmm. bad situation, that's going to ground you and take you out of that bad situation for a bit and get you focused on something positive. And then you can deal with the the disaster or whatever it is that's going on around you. But I think that's, yeah, that's a really valid point. That's something that a lot of people forget about. They focus and they hyper focus on. I need the stockpile of food. I need the stockpile of water. I need that magical 72-hour bag that I can buy from whatever supplier that makes me feel like I'm ready but they don't focus on the things that will help them get through and keep a sense of normal. And yeah, everybody completely forgets about that part of it. That's a fantastic point.
3: I tell the people. Actually, wrote about this in the book. There's actually a story I tell. Uh, I was I was doing a disaster plan for a very large RV park in the United States, one of the largest in the world, mm-hmm. and um, so and and when I was finishing up, uh, you know, there 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 were some some folks who were there who were saying, "Hey, listen, we're going to be traveling the U.S. via RV for the next nine months." So we bought this disaster backpack. Would you be willing to just take a look at it? You don't have to run a program or anything. Would you just look through the backpack? And I say, okay, sure. You know, cause I'm a sucker for that stuff. I go, okay, sure. So yeah. they bring me the backpack. And of course the backpack has never been opened. Mm. It is still closed and it still has that, you know, that zip tie they always put up to make sure people <laughs> unzip it yep. in the store and steal the stuff. So it has the zip tie on there. So they said, okay. And I said, all right. So I take the scissors and I cut the thing off And then, um, you know, I take and I do this to audiences all the time. It always makes a big impact. I take their backpack and I literally unzip the top and I turn it upside down and I (laughs) dump the whole thing out on the table. And so I was looking at everything and stuff looked fine. And then there was the infamous food pellet. Mm. So I said, you know, it's those, one of those K ration types. And yep. so I said, okay, and that's fine for, for some folks. And yep. so what I said was, you know, we we're looking at the difference. They said, okay, there's the whistle, you know how it is. There's the whistle that looks good. A little 80 cent flashlight, which by the way, I'm not really sure that flashlight would have ever really worked. They had batteries for it and technically worked. I would never use it, but nope. yeah. via con Dios to anyone who can. Um, and I said, okay, fine. And so we took the pellet and so, um, uh, I took a knife that I carried on me and I cut the pellet in half and I broke it up and they were shocked. They just were like, what are you doing? Why are you breaking that open? What, yeah, that's what, a what, whole what, day
2: what? behind on my supplies I, now.
3: Right? I <laughs> <laughs> so we opened the thing up and I cut it into pieces and they said, so what's this? And I said, lunch. And I said, we're going to eat this right, right nice. now. And they actually said, we can't eat it. And I said, why not? And they said, he's on a very specific diet. He's, he has celiac disease. He cannot eat anything like this and that. And she oh. actually had a, a health disorder um, that didn't allow her to eat. And there was like one of the, the, it's just a minor ingredient. It really wasn't that important. Most people aren't affected by it, but she, for some reason, was hypersensitive to it. Right. And said, I couldn't eat it. And I said, so let me ask you a question. Would you have been prepared and they said, absolutely not. And I said, so let's get you food that would have prepared you correctly. So I went and I actually got them real food. I actually ended up shipping it to another RV park, which ironically, actually, I'd done a disaster plan for that park too. Right. It actually had it shipped to that place because I didn't want them to go around the country without without right. the proper food. So, so, so when people are always saying, okay, thank you, uh, red backpack manufacturer. You give me everything I need. I go, no, yeah. don't assume that they've done that. Cause they are designing yeah. the disaster for you. That's why I called my book design any disaster, because you don't want them designing the disaster, yeah. you design the disaster. And that's yeah. how you, and how you take a certain control of it. So, yeah.
0: I always so, say those, those uh, red backpacks, as you uh, describe them, great to kind of start out and get you sort of basics, but you got to build around it, customize it to you and yeah, it's, it's, it's not a one-stop, buy it, throw it in the car, throw it in the closet, and I'm ready for anything. It just, you know, that's what a lot of people do, right? They think they get that false sense of security with having that backpack that has been pre-made for them. And yeah, sure, it's better than nothing. But yeah, it's literally a start or like a gateway into preparedness. You've got something to build around now. Right. But yeah, and yeah, going through it all and making sure that it's actually usable for you is key. Like like you had just said there, Patrick, those two folks weren't able to eat the food that they had in the bag. That's not going to help you in a in a bad situation, right? That's going to actually hinder you because yeah. you think you've got what you need, and then you realize, uh oh, uh, I, I can't eat this. <laughs> now what? Yeah, right? yeah it's almost worse I, having food I mean, in front of you you can't eat, right? Yeah. Or food that'll yeah. actually get you sick. That too. Right? Because yeah.
3: it's it's one thing if the food doesn't taste good, right? Oh, like there yeah, are people that are tasting K rations and things that go, okay, that doesn't taste good, but I'm not gonna get sick. Yep. But it's another thing altogether when the food makes you really ill. And people with celiacs, like that's a real yeah. illness. Like you get yeah, that stuff that's a big deal. that makes you sick, that because yep. you that you get you get faint, you have to go to an emergency room. So it's a big deal. You're absolutely right. Uh, but how was
2: the quality of can opener in and- <laughs> So so, someone's going to want to know, someone is going to want (laughs) to know.
3: I will tell you this, that those things are just basically two pieces of metal that they stuck together with some machine and put it in there. Uh, I don't want to contradict anyone here, but one of the things that I actually tell families all the, the time is I say, you know how to start your emergency backpack. I got a perfect way to do it. Go to the store or go online and buy the best empty backpack you can find. Find a really cool, empty backpack. Don't get the one from the store that's already. I mean, first of all, I hate those red backpacks. Anyway, they don't look good. They, you know, I want to look cool. I mean, exactly. Get a backpack that's right for you. Because actually Kyle asks a really interesting question. He says, how many CO2 detectors do I need in a disaster? And you know what the answer is? I have no idea. (laughs) It depends on you, right? It depends on what you're, you know, it depends on what you are dealing with, right? It's the same with everything else, yeah. right? Um, if you need a really good can opener, you should go and buy a really good can opener. I agree with Pierre entirely, which by, by the way, can yeah. openers is, is one of those sort of staple items that I say to everybody. I say, I, listen, I don't care what you're dealing with, always have a can opener because you know yeah. what's the thing? Um, I, I, I discovered this when I was in college and this was very true, which was, I, I, um, I read a biography of Napoleon, And one of the things I realized was that Napoleon couldn't figure out how to feed his army um, going on a long march because he was planning to conquer not only Europe. He had very early. He was he was planning to conquer Russia. There was just no question in his head he was going to do that. And he couldn't figure out how in the world he was going to feed these people. So he got an expert to develop what we now know as the can, which is those those cans that we have in Campbell's soup. Right and uh when i was in europe um i had i I knew this guy he was he was a flatmate in 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 my dorms and he he literally took a can of beans he took the can opener and he opened up the can and then he literally i make this up not he took the can and he literally stuck the can directly on the stovetop and he turned the stove up and he cooked the food in there and i and he'd taken all the paper off of course and all that But he told me that's the way they do it. And that's and because essentially the technology of the can hasn't changed since the time of Napoleon. It's the same exact concept. Um, And that's the reason why I I tell people, can you know, having canned foods, I'm not real big on a lot of generic advice, but that's one thing that I always say, there is no question that canned food will make a massive difference. So a can opener, especially a really good one, is worth the, what, five, six, seven dollar investment? I mean... Yep. Instead of the 20 set one, they stuck in there.
0: You've totally yep. validated Brad now. <laughs> we had an episode quite a while ago, and it went all on can open, openers eventually. Yeah, so, it, it was just like this weird thing saying he had like six it? can
2: openers, and yep. it was, it's just been a thing. And I was like, oh, yeah. I'm going to drop that. And then you, I, you just carried it, not even knowing, and that I was, was like
0: this. Beautiful. That was perfect. Brad has totally been validated with that. And it's right. Like, yeah. You're hundred percent right. You, you need a good one. Yeah. Uh, also well, tell
3: the- Scott, I'm just like, I'm pulling up his spirit animal. I just pulled <laughs> up a spirit animal right now. The can opener. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: awesome. There is also uh, for yeah. Kyle's uh, comment about the CO detectors, just to kind of fill you in a little bit as to why he's asking. Um, that's a bit of a thing mm. with the podcast as well. Um, Alan, one is of it? our usual panelists is, uh, is pretty adamant <laughs> about making sure everybody's got a working CO2 detectors. So, He's, uh, okay. it's, it's a pretty common theme it interweaved throughout pretty much every episode since when was his first one? Yeah. Episode 7 or 8 and it's been uh, consistent all the way through so it's not yeah. a, not a mean, random question it's totally uh, <laughs> he's totally trying to it. stir the pot <laughs> totally, like,
2: yeah and, and I mean you know how many do you need you don't know I mean if you've got six appliances in your house that run on propane yep. natural gas you'd probably want more than one you'd want got one it. if everything is electric in your house the odds are Got probably it. slim to none compared to you know natural gas propane appliances this that and everything. So yeah, oh. like you said, you know all depends on your scenario. So it's always something to take into consideration.
3: Depends on your lifestyle, or everything else. Yeah. I mean, mean like you know Freya writes about you know should you always have a hang? Oh, should you always have a nail clipper? I go, oh yeah, absolutely. If that's if that's something that you think happens often enough to you, or you think that that's important, where you're like, you know what, I don't even run the run the risk of that thing i would say absolutely put that in your backpack no question about that so um yeah. my my brother actually runs a hair salon so like one of the things he always says i always gotta have like shampoo in there i was like no no, no we're not going there okay we're not we're not going but whatever matters to you whatever you think is important to you i mean i've had people who've actually said i'm going to keep actually hair clippers um in my uh disaster backpack and they actually have you know there's like in a small like leather bag and they just use them when they're traveling, and so they just say they keep them in their disaster backpacks when they're home, because that's that important sense. to them. During COVID, I didn't have a haircut for three months, so I can I can understand. Yep.
0: <laughs> uh, Scott's got a question one. here in the uh, in the live chat. Uh, says that he's written a disaster plan as uh, computer industry, but how do you write in flexibility in your plans?
3: First thing I do when I look at a disaster plan is, a matter of fact, my father uh, was an information technology disaster recovery specialist in the '90s and late late '80s and early '90s. And let me tell you how early he was involved in this. Okay, so he worked for a company, and uh, and they, you know, they uh, he had been a computer programmer and a software engineer, and they they said, well, we need you to develop a backup system because we have all this software we're developing for video gamers for video game companies and for all these different firms and things will you will you help us to back it up he says fine so he does some research comes back he says okay guys um we should buy a server and they turned to him and said what in the world's a server <laughs> i mean that's how early this was <laughs> this is before anybody owned a server right you know and this was when cisco was brand new right because cisco at that time was dominant in servers, i think they still are to some extent but back then they were really they were the only game in town so he said um um i have to create this because we have to because for us for us to be back in business in 10 days that's what we have to have so when when you're talking about flexibility i'm not quite sure what you mean but what one of the things i do when i look at plans is i say Um, Does your plan allow for a variety of scenarios based on who's in charge? So, for example, if you have a disaster plan in the computer industry and it says like this, only the information technology specialist can do X. Only the executive vice president can do Y. Only the managers can do Z. And I talk about this directly in the book. Because I say that is how you create a disaster when you have people who stand around and say, "You know what? I can't do anything because the 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 disaster plan says I can't do anything until the manager shows up." That happens so often that when I look at plans, you know, because people they'll they'll hire me to consult a big company, will hire me, they'll say, "You know, when you look at our plan, you know, it'll be this, you know." 1500 page behemoth and I'll flip through it and I'll say, well, I have a recommendation right now. And they said, what is it? I said, I want you to eliminate all of the different titles in this disaster plan. They go, why why would you do that? And I would say, because if you don't give people the ability to use the plan, you don't give them the flexibility to act in the plan, they can't be creative enough to help you recover. You have to involve them if they're not involved, it isn't going to happen. And my specialty, of course, is small business. So we're not talking about companies with you know thousands of employees. We're talking about companies with five employees, four employees, three employees. So when I've written plans for smaller organizations, I say, you see that guy that you've hired, that cook you hired? He's going to be on your disaster team, too. But if you don't empower him and say to him, if we have an emergency, I need your help, he's going to leave because he doesn't have any stake in what's going on here. Right. And in yep. IT, you guys were talking about cybersecurity. I was talking to the FBI about this last week is that if small businesses don't have plans where anyone can start intervening, cybersecurity is based on seconds, not yep. minutes, not hours, not days. It is seconds when people intervening that can make a major difference in it. I
0: think it really hit the hit the point home there with a lot of people doing a plan, if they are at the point of writing up a plan or getting something in, in process for here's how I'm going to react to A disaster, B disaster, C disaster, people just always go to that. This person's going to be in command. This person's going to look after getting this. This person's going to look after getting that. And they never say if person B is not available, well, now what? If person A is not available. Who does A's yeah. job? So that's, again, fantastic. Just here's the plan. Yeah. Whoever gets here first, start the plan. <laughs> like, don't yeah. don't wait for, you know, the the designated leader to show up and say, you now need to go and do this and you need to go do that. Just start the plan. Do something. Yeah. But human nature okay. will sit around and wait for that designated leader to show up, to tell them to do A, B, and C, even though it's already written down. That's... Fantastic. You hit
3: the, Eric, you hit the major thesis of my book, which is my book basically says, in most situations, people will follow the assumption, if I do nothing, someone else will handle it for me. That's what I talk about yep. in every kind of disaster. And the example I talk about, right, is a guy having a heart attack at Disneyland. Mm-hmm. And I talk about the people around him that were standing around. But, and, but you know, and sometimes I, I get emails from people going, well, I, I I would have intervened there. And I would say, well, But I can tell you in floods, in fires, in hurricanes, in blizzards, people say, I need to wait for the government to do this for me. I need FEMA to do this for me. I need the insurance company to do this for me. And I say, the minute you do that. You have become a bystander because you are now saying, I don't take a position in my disaster response. I let someone else, quote, design it for me. That's why I called it the the title I did, because I said, you're letting somebody else design how it's going to run. And then you wonder why you're disappointed at the end. I'd be disappointed, too. (laughs) I wouldn't want the insurance company to run my disaster response. Yeah. So it's and and Kevin's right. It's analysis paralysis. I mean, that's what ends up happening is that you have so many people who are uh, trying to say, well, should the should the fireman handle this and the law enforcement handle this and EMS guys will handle this. When I I was an EMT and I, I worked on an ambulance, I can't tell you the number of times I'd show up on scene and people would say, oh, can you just start taking care of him? And I'd be like, well, yes, but I, I need you to tell me some things first. Yep. What's going on? And there'd be people screaming. I mean, I, I saw some really terrible things sometimes and I'd be in car accidents. I I'll be like, you need to tell me more about this person, who they are and wh- what's happening. Cause I don't, I have to make a case history yep. as I'm treating this person. I can't start an IV till I know what's going on. You know what I mean? They can't make it necessarily communicate, but people will just stand by and do nothing. Yep. I mean, they'll just literally stand there. And I say in hurricanes, I mean and you, you you guys read the news all the time so the first thing i would ask you is that how many times have you or i or the people who are hearing this how many times have you read a news article a month or two months post disaster and it says uh people complaining that uh you know um, insurance company x didn't do the right thing or fema didn't show up on time what's going yeah. on in ohio you know, with, with the uh, train accident, with the hazmat spill. I don't know if you guys have been talking about that. I oh hope yeah. I, if you haven't, I hope you will. Yep. Because I tell people all the time, I was a hazmat guy. I would say you, you have to take your own responsibility for what's going on there. If you expect them to run your disaster response, you are going to be wholly disappointed. Is that, is that sad? Yeah. Is it, but it's the way of the world. Yeah. And if you don't take responsibility, never going to happen. Yeah. Like, I,
2: I, yeah. And that, and that's a big thing, right? Like at the end of the day, you expect first responders to show up or you know whether it be paramedics fire police you know government whatever it is i mean depending on the scenario of the disaster um you know the cop ems all those people are human and most of them may have families and everything that's just being like you know what this is this is a little too much i'm gonna go home i'm gonna go take care of my family you know Yes, it's part of their job and it's not, but like, just depending on the scenario, it's just like, this is taking a really bad turn that I'm unsure of everything. I'm going to go home with my family. Right. And then you're sitting there being like, well, where is he? Right. I'm like, the person's human. You know, it's a tough decision for them to make because obviously they're doing that job to help serve people. But I'm like, if everybody has that point where they're just like, nah, I'm going home. It doesn't matter. What, what job you do for a living or whatever. There is a point where everybody is going to start thinking about themselves first. Yep. And if you well, rely what- on a bunch of people to do stuff for you, right? Th- there's going to be a point where all those people that are there and paid and they do this and they love their job to come and assist you. There's a point where they're going to be like, I can't. Yep. I need to go take care of my family. And then you're stuck left holding, you know, the bag. So it's 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 key to be able to understand the concept that, you know, I'm not saying you need to be uh, a surgeon qualified. You need to be a firefighter. (laughs) You you know, I'm not saying you need to do all that, but I'm like just some basic things, right? Like someone with a heart attack, a good bleed, you know, have some crazy glue, close up that wounds. You know, it's a disaster going to the hospital for two stitches, probably not the best, but you know, just little things like that can help alleviate a lot of stress for the people that are doing that job, right? People that are coming to help you. I'm sure they're just stressed to the max right stretched in they don't know what to do so just doing those little things for yourself is one of the best things you can do
3: in the world oh you're absolutely right and in fact i talk to caregivers all the time so people who are taking care of those who have sort of these pre-existing c- conditions i can't tell you the number of times as an ems professional i would show up on scene i roll up on scene, so myself my partner what's going on and there's a person there and I don't know what's hap I don't know why this person is on oxygen. Do they have COPD? Do they have emphysema? Do they have this? Do they have that? Yeah. And they won't have anything. The family members will just start shouting out things. Oh yeah, he's got this. Oh yeah, and he has this. Oh, and this. And then they'll hand me a bunch of pills. As if I, I know what you know clopromazine is. Like, I mean, I don't know what I mean. I you get familiar with the basic stuff, but you don't know everything. But they'll start yeah. handing it to you and I'll say, that's not helpful i mean it is it's it's helpful when he gets to the emergency room but at this point it's a big deal and one of the things that i wanted to say also uh just kind of buttressing your point i kind of totally agree with you is that yep. um, i train emts i i, I train them um, on a volunteer basis now i go back to my old school and um the uh emts i always pull the same trick okay so i'll, I'll take it take a barrel which i've used food coloring with and i'll dump it over and then i'll have a couple patients a couple victims out you know actors and stuff. And they'll roll up on scene. The first thing they'll do is they'll jump out of the ambulance and they'll start running towards the patient. And I go, you both are now victims as well. You Mm -hmm. both are now victims of of the spill. And they go, well, what, what are you talking about? I heard people screaming. That's my job. And I go, you have to protect yourself first. If you don't, you're now part of the problem. And PR, what experienced responders do, and you know this absolutely, you guys all yeah. know this, which is they will not do that. They'll walk up on scene and they'll be like this. I mean, they don't want to, but they're gonna be like this until they say, once the scene's safe, then I'll come. It yeah. happens with criminal responses all the time. I mean, I've seen that, I can't tell you a number of times where, where, where we're on, on a scene where there was an active criminal agent involved, not always a shooting, could be a person with a knife, could be a person with, who has psychiatric problems and literally will stand by until law enforcement goes on the radio and says, okay guys, you're good to go cause cus- you know, suspects in custody or suspects neutralized. You can go in there. But until that time, I'm not going to go in it. Cause you know why in the end I need to have a paycheck. I got a family. I got yep. a cat that likes me most <laughs> of the time. <laughs> so, so I want to go back home. I want to go back home. So
0: yep.
1: that, yeah. that, that,
0: that's the point. Yeah, you bring up another really good point there where people in a disaster situation just kind of, run either away from it, if you're in emergency response towards it, but you don't always take that time to step back and assess with what you're actually dealing with. People just kind of get into it and do what they think is right. But taking that even five, 10 seconds to take a breath, look at what you're dealing with and then acting on it can completely change how that disaster situation is actually going to affect you. And it may even be the difference between you surviving it and not. So taking that taking that couple of seconds and just look at the whole thing, the whole picture, just helps you figure out exactly what it is you're dealing with.
1: And and I mean, like like Eric, I was in emergency services for for years and years and years, and it just would blow my mind what people would be calling emergency services for, and it's like. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you want us for what? <laughs> like, you know, well, my power's been out for an hour. Okay. <laughs> do, do, mm-hmm. Police don't drive the, the trucks. And, you know, I'm sure the firemen have time to go and put your power back on, but they don't usually do that. <laughs> but um, it, 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 until I got in there and, and really saw it firsthand, um, it absolutely blew my mind to the amount of people who, as you say, they have no plan, they have no idea what to do, and they expect that somebody else is going to do it for them. And they expect that person to do it now, not three hours from now, or four hours from now, or two days from now. hmm
3: yeah, and imagine that on a scale where you're doing with like a massive disaster, like yep. a flood, uh, you know, Cat 4 hurricane, you're dealing with a blizzard, that kind of thing. That, that experience, Jeff, is like this. Now imagine a disaster and it's like this. It's massive because you have an entire population of people who are now calling for a variety of reasons. They, I would hear people in Louisiana, they'd call 911 and say, I need someone to drive my grandmother to this or that. And we would say, was she ill or whatever? They say, no, she just needs someone to pick her up. There's no taxi services operating. And since you're the government, we expect mm-hmm. you to do this because you failed us. I read that in the newspaper, you failed us. You didn't do this with the levies and that with the levies, so you owe me. And I literally thought to myself, I I've, I, I, I listened to that 91 call over and over again. I thought that tells me so much about somebody who hasn't empowered themselves. Uh, they basically yeah. said, I'm allowing someone else to run this disaster and design it for me. Why would I, why would you do that?
1: You
2: yeah. know? And, and half, half of that, I will even say is sometimes there's a little bit of a stigmatism put aside next to, you know, if you plan for any preparedness, right? Like, Hey, you know, I, I buy extra groceries and I stock a little pantry in the basement, right? Like there's a very quick association where right. you've got a Ghillie suit. You've got, you know, a thousand guns, Tinfoil hat. 200,000, yeah, tinfoil hat. You know, you've got an underground bunker. But I'm like, there, there's that. Wait a minute, wait a
0: minute. What's wrong wait. with the underground bunker? Mm? Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs>
2: know. know, right? But so all these things, right? Like just even just saying like, hey, you know what? Like recently, right around Christmas here, we had a crazy storm. Not too much snow came down, but the snow drift. I live on a dead end street where I'm like, mm. My winter tires aren't that great because I was like, I ordered a truck. I was like, I'm not going to put a $1,000 in tires. I'll just moderate when I drive my vehicle. But I'm like, there was a snow drift higher than my work truck at the end of my road. I'm like, Even if there was mm. something, I wouldn't have been able to go anywhere. Right? I'm like, okay, so it was Christmas. Um, nothing was open. I wasn't going to do groceries or whatever. Um, thankfully, no medical emergencies needed to come by. But I'm like, Good. You know, it took like a day and a bit for the plow pass. Cause I'm like, it's Christmas. There's snow everywhere. And I'm just like, you know, so saying I'm, I'm prepared for that to happen. There's a strong association with like, you're that crazy guy that I've seen on the internet. And, <laughs> and you know, and, and, and it's, it's, it's almost like we've gone away from normalizing, you know, being prepared for a few days, being okay mm-hmm. with being stuck in my house for two, three days, you know, with moderate power, power outage, snow, um, just really bad weather where I'm like it's just really crappy to be outside and you can't go get the Starbucks or your Tim Hortons or your McDonald's or whatever it is, right? We, we've almost taken that normalcy away of being like I'm comfortable in my house for a few days and I prepare mm. for stuff. It's now the second you say that, right? Everybody thinks tinfoil hat, you're missing a few teeth and you walk around with a shotgun in your pants, <laughs> right? Like there, there's <laughs> no in between.
1: Yeah. You're 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 right, but then that's the same person that when that emergency happens, 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 where they (laughs) exactly they're coming knocking on your door. They they slammed you last week, but now they're coming knocking on your door saying, "Oh, can you help me out?" Mm
3: I spoke yep. at a conference, um, it was actually a mobile home conference, and um, and so I, I spoke on disaster preparedness, just like I did here, and about literally a month or two later, there there was a massive wildfire up here in Northern California, surprise, surprise, and she calls me and says, hey, Patrick, can you tell me the best evacuation route, because I know you live up here, can you tell me the best ways out of town, what should I we be carrying, how do we do this, and I said, you want me to do your entire disaster preparedness plan in the next five minutes? That's what you want me to do? Because she's like, oh, there's a fire if you, you know, a bit, bit away. And I say to people, you know, that's not the time because now you've let mother nature run your disaster program. Now it's in charge. You're not in charge anymore. Um, I say this also, which is what, what Pierre, what Pierre was actually bringing up, which I thought was interesting, which is that if someone's lifestyle says that you know, you're going to be in your own house for a few days. If things like working out are important to you. I mean, I mean, we're just to be honest like, about Starbucks or something like if something is like critically important, to you, like you have to work out or you start to really have difficulty, then you got to prepare for that. And you have to say, you know what, I have to be prepared with a workout to work out at home. Like that's a part That's a part of your disaster program. And if you, it isn't, you are missing a, there is a glaring, glaring hole in your emergency preparedness plan. So, um, I'm kind of I guess I'm kind of answering Kyle's question here about most overlooked preparedness for disasters. Most overlooked preparedness for disasters, in my opinion, is your mental health. Uh, That's one of the things I tell people all the time you can be in tremendous physical distress. I mean, I work disasters. Trust me, I slept on more floors than any Marine. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't mean that literally, but I slept on tons of floors in parishes at parish EOCs at, you know, police station floors. Um, when I was actually, uh, during hurricane Sandy, um, I was actually in Washington DC and I actually slept on a couch in FEMA's headquarters because there was no power, there was no nothing at the house I was living at. Cause I, I wasn't gonna stay there permanently. I was just there for a rotation. And I literally was sleeping on the couch in FEMA because I had a preparedness plan and that said, that's my alternate site. Hey, FEMA's headquarters. What could be a better alternate site than that? Um, but the most—they're not prepared. We got
2: big problems. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, exactly.
3: If they don't have a backup generator, I think the United States is in real trouble. Um, yeah. But the most overlooked preparedness, I think, is evaluating your mental health, which is what we talked about a little earlier with food. But I'm going to go into it yeah. a little bit more, which is, what is it that keeps you feeling good? because um, there's actually an adventurer, uh, a guy named Bear Grylls. I really like him a awful lot. I watched him on TV years ago. And one of the things he used to say is he said, you know what's the key to surviving, which is staying hopeful, maintaining hope. That's the biggest thing. And so when I talk about disasters, um, whatever it is that makes you feel good that's what you should try to pursue because um, when I work with, um, for example, I work with a lot of drug rehab places and when they have to evacuate their site, these are people that may go on the street and you know what's the first thing these people are going to do, even though they've been clean, they've been clean for months, you have a massive disaster, they're on the street. You know, it's the first thing they're going to do to cope with the anxiety and stress. It's they start to use it again. Exactly. Yeah. I yeah, don't <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Or, or, you know, yeah. or call up their local dealer. But, uh, but what I tell yeah. them is I say, you know, if they're in command of their own disaster, you give them a, a, a way to take control of their disaster response, then they can continue their lifestyle as they're going. But their mental health is what's going to keep them going. It's what's going to keep them clean it is such a huge deal that, in fact, we evaluated even down i have clients where and i don't advise this so so i don't advise this for everybody just this is a limited circumstance i actually have a client who says i can't operate without having a glass of red wine every night and i'm not advising getting drunk so so i don't (laughs) want somebody (laughs) who's saying like hey patrick I have a podcast (laughs) for you (laughs) exactly we're gonna hop on there listen to this guy he says get drunk every day but i i just said to him then get a bottle of red wine and you know what sip a little bit of it, it doesn't mean you have to have a whole glass but if that is important to yeah. you and just the taste of it helps you to feel good then you know what via Dios, go do it because that that'll really help you in the long run
2: yeah like i, I get nervous when i have less than two tubs of coffee in the house
3: <laughs> there <Yeah>. you go <laughs> but, but
2: i i've been drinking coffee for i don't know how many times and i'm like i've tried okay. you know or i've skipped the coffee like oh, i didn't grab a coffee or whatever and like two o'clock i got that two three o'clock i got that pounding headache you can take as many pills as you want grab a cup mm. of coffee 20 minutes later you're fine so i'm like if, if there's anything for me i was like i have at least one cup of coffee a day and if i don't i get that crazy headache and it'll probably go away after time but i'm like just imagine a disaster having that pounding headache that that tylenol advil leave you've got you can take as many as you want it never goes away so i'm like no nope, there's Always coffee. I was like, I'll, I'll French press it and drink it cold if need be. Right there, you go. Like yeah, yeah, like, I care. It, it's 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 that you need that, right? So I'm like, totally. that's my thing. There's always coffee.
3: And I always tell, tell people that a, a, a recovering from a, a category five hurricane isn't the time to quit drinking coffee. It isn't the time to stop smoking. No. It isn't the time to stop doing those things to say, oh, you know what? That was the best time. I'm just going to stop drinking coffee. I should have stopped that years ago because then you're just going to, you know, you're going to be miserable. And then you may even i have actually had a client yeah. one time that did that cold turkey. I actually had to go to a hospital, did caffeine withdrawal. I don't think I'd ever seen that before where it had been that severe, but just like you, they've been drinking it for so many years. And then all of a sudden, boom, they didn't have it. And it's, wow. you know, it's the kind of thing where it's like, now's not the time to yeah. be but stopping the, the elevated pain. stress, <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, the, ele- the elevated stress, anxiety, exactly.
2: panic, all that on top of like, uh, I'm going to withdraw from caffeine, probably <laughs> <laughs> definitely <laughs> not, not the time to be doing that. No, no but, not the uh, time.
0: <laughs> no, it's crazy. <laughs> All right. what would be uh what would be some advice that you would give to seasoned preppers or somebody that thinks they've they're got their plan rock solid they know what they're doing they don't need any more advice what's something you would tell them write a book
3: Right, there you go, <laughs> write a book, read mine. Yep. Um, the first yep. thing that I would actually tell them is this, is I say, you know, what's the most overlooked thing I notice, you know, you know, with preppers? I'm not saying this is true true with you guys. I'm sure you guys are very well prepared. But hmm. one of the things I do tell them is I say, look, I want you to examine r- your recovery from a perspective of looking at your life as a series of critical processes. This is what I do with small businesses all the time. So for example, I'll, I'll you know, I'll talk to a restaurant and I'll say, your critical processes for you are things like making sure you have raw ingredients, making sure you have your work workforce, making sure you have that. What I tell them is I say, and I've worked with season preppers before. I've actually worked with um, really high net worth clients. I actually have a high net worth client that actually uh, talking about a bunker. This is the coolest bunker I've ever seen. It's actually in an old nuclear silo somewhere in the Midwest. I can't disclose what state, but it's actually an old nuclear silo. And th- it is tricked out. To say it is tricked out, it is tricked out. And um, yeah. they actually told me once that if I'm able to sell, if, if my book becomes a bestseller, I, I go down there, we'll take pictures and throw it on social media because it, it's it's so cool. It's got a little swimming pool down there. It's got like wow. a, a, a movie theater. It's got all kinds of things. Because to them, regardless of what we think about that, right, as reg, quote, yep. regular people, to them, that's important. Their lifestyle is important. And yep. they have a big company they run. They have massive communication. I mean, Eric, for you, for you and I being ham operators, yep. you got, Pierre, you're a ham operator too, right? oh you're not I eat Jeff, you sandwiches yes oh yeah have sandwiches that's <laughs> hard as you go <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah that's, that's as <laughs> well, far oh, as good. the ham goes for it now the
3: sandwich <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: jeff's an operator yeah
3: these guys oh does yeah. he okay yeah so but yeah. but yeah but those ones i mean they have tricked out radios i mean they've got everything so even they they have like we trained to make sure their household staff had at least tech technician level licenses <laughs> so that they could at least transmit I mean, you can't get every band but in disasters it usually doesn't even matter you get uh, band but the point I was making was that when you're reco- re- recovering, particularly from a long-term disaster, I, especially since this prepper culture, I want to use it for everyday people, everyday people, mm-hmm. is I say, look at your life and say, what do I have to have and when, and go to the next level of sophistication. So here's what I say, so for for example, examine your... Uh, for example, so let's say you have a person who has to go to therapy. Okay, They were traumatized. They have a lot of triggers and a disaster. I will tell you this, disasters trigger a ton of people. As a matter of fact, um, I was talking to to some folks over in Turkey and and I'm hoping to be able to assist them um, in helping to recover the mental health infrastructure over there because I sit on the UN's uh, public-private partnership and I'm the small business rep. And one of the things that I was telling them was I was saying, these small businesses, there are things you have to be you have to look at their critical operations. So, so with people, if you have someone who has say they have to be in therapy because if they don't, they're in big trouble trouble. So I say, now we need to look at making sure that that business that you, cause that's what it is. If they every therapy office, at least in the United States, these are all businesses. What if your therapist isn't available? What if they go out of business? What if they're not there? Do we have a backup therapist? Do we have someone else we can work with? Do we, do we do telehealth? Do we use the phone? Is that available? Whatever we're able to do. And I ask people to look at themselves in a more in-depth ways, particularly for quote, longer emergencies, because if you, you guys have got the immediate stuff down. You've got, you're ready to go. You've got the suture kits. You could do lots of things. But for other folks, maybe who live in larger cities or people like that, doesn't matter. Anything you're dependent on an outside business for, think about that. Um, one of the things that became really interesting, an interesting phenomenon during COVID was prior to COVID, at least in the United States, particularly in California, um, parents were always saying gee it'd be so great if we could have kids home from school more often so we could get lessons here at home and then during covid all the kids were being schooled at home and these were not people who traditionally homeschooled anybody i mean these were kids and you know what happened in san francisco they literally had a revolt and they recalled the boards the uh the um school board members because they wouldn't reopen the schools in san francisco because they wanted the kids to go back to school. I said, please send the kids back. We loved having them here. Please open the schools and get them back. And I said, yeah. I said to them, all of a sudden you realize you are now dependent on a school to educate your kids. What if the school isn't there? What if some institution that you have to have operating isn't available? And when you guys are examining things, look back into yourselves and say, what institution am I relying on day-to-day Uh, You know, month to month, because those are things that if they fail, are they available? I'm actually developing a really sophisticated disaster plan. I'm planning to launch it within a couple months, which is talking about what happens if there's no banks? What if the banks stop working? Like, how does a normal person function when the banks don't work? Um, Because banks get closed during major disasters, right? How do you handle that? So these are the kinds of things that I ask people to evaluate them. And in the book, I don't have time to go into it here, but in my book, I actually lay out exactly how to do that and you can do it in one sentence one sentence there's a way to do it i teach you how to construct that one sentence and in doing so that will identify every single of every single dependency you have and how to maximize your independence so you're designing your own disaster and not having someone else do it for you
0: that's awesome
2: and actually it's funny right like the whole covid daughter was at home doing the homeschool thing I don't know how teachers do it because I mean like there were like two kids talking on the computer and I was like I can't do this right but (laughs) I mean but even at that point right like we've we've gotten better you know as a household but uh, the daughter picked up crocheting right just someone showed her how to do a little crochet so now she's like hey, I need like $400 worth of supplies because I'm going to make this 20-foot <laughs> alligator. And I'm like, let's slow down, right? So a month and a half, two months ago, you know, she saw this thing and she was like, I want to make this. So I need this, 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 this. And I'm like, let's make something start to finish. It was like, make me a ball. It was like, make, make a ball. I was like, it doesn't have to be a big ball. I was like, I don't care if it's two inches around. I was like, start to finish, stuffed, everything. She finally made it tonight. She made the ball. And now she's like, she figured out how to put ears on it, a nose on it. She put eyes on it. And she's already figuring out how to put this, that, and everything. And I'm like, but I'm like that, that level and just the thought in her mind of like, I did something right. Like she can make a crochet line this big by that big, but she's like, can't do anything else. But she thinks she could do whatever. So I said, I'll go buy $400 worth of yarn but I was like, you need to do something with it other than it just be sitting around the house, right? Yep. Right. So, okay, like I, I'm like, I don't know how to crochet. I don't know how to sew. I'm like, mother-in-law knows how to do it, so she's helped her, but she'll get to a point where she like passes it off and wants someone else to do it. I was like, that's not how this works. Yep. If you want something, but I'm like the hours of entertainment yep. now that she has made that little thing, I'm like, can mm-hmm. save you like a day of like, you know, someone coming up and just be like, TV doesn't work. Where's my Netflix? Yeah. <laughs> Where's my show? Totally. Right? And, totally. and that stress on top of a disaster is the last thing you need. So like so we're going to go to Michaels, we're going to pick up a bunch of yarn and we're just going to hide it from her. So when stuff happens and it's it's going to be that shiny <laughs> stuff, right? It's be I the love shiny it. She's like, "Oh my I god. I love it.
3: I love right? it." But but just
2: it. that, right? Like so making sure that, you know, if you've got kids and you know, pets, whatever. You know, we have two dogs. So I'm like, maybe we're going to take one of those bones and just cram it full of peanut butter and just put it in the freezer. I and mean, when there's a disaster where the dogs are annoying me, here's a bone full of peanut butter. They're not bothering me for two hours. Yep. Right there. That's the stress off your plate. They're not pacing behind you. They're not doing this. They're not doing that. Just, there you go. They're off in the corner. They're good for two hours. I'm like, just doing that, which costs next to nothing. You've probably got a bone or a toy of some sort peanut butter is probably already in your cupboard or almond butter or whatever you've got. I just throw it in your freezer. It takes next to no room, but I'm like, just take it alleviating those small little stresses can make a world of difference.
3: Now, how many lists on how many government lists or so-called pre-prepared lists do you think balls of yarn would be on a disaster preparedness <laughs> kit list? I mean, you would right. say zero, right? But it's all no, yours because you identified yeah. something really important and said, you know what? I have to have that because that is an important part of her mental health. And and also just dealing with the stress and hassle and the anxiety that necessarily accompanies some major incident. So I I love it. I absolutely love that.
2: Yeah. Cool. And yeah. Right, because I mean, yeah, government. I mean, I, I'd hate to see what the government pays for a ball of yarn. <laughs> <laughs> the
3: three <000 laughs> thousand dollar. Right?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's a three, yeah, it's a three thousand dollar ball of yarn. I was like, I just bought it at the dollar store for three dollars. Like, what are you talking? You know, but that that's that's a whole different thing. But yeah, just right, like figuring out like those little things. I'm like, you know, it was for months. She was like, I really want more. Brought her to Michael's. Nice. where I'm like, they got that whole aisle of everything, right? And she was like, Well, can we get everything? I was like, Did you make the ball yet? She's like, nope, let's get out of here. But I think that <laughs> kind of gave her here. an incentive, <laughs> right? Right? But it gave her an incentive. So I'm like, you know, and getting them involved and in how can they, I don't want to say distract themselves, but, you know, if you've got kids, like how can we all work sure. together, right? We can all cook food. We can all cook on the sure. propane outside, on the fire pit or whatever. But I'm like, you still need that time to disassociate. So I'm like, you got to be able to figure out how, how I can have my time you know she can have her time and everybody you know wife parents grandparents kids you know you all need that like five ten minute break where nobody needs to do whatever so i'm like you got to figure out how to figure that out in your plan because yeah if the covid showed anything it was just like how many people don't like being around kids
3: <laughs> <laughs> all in their small house yeah <laughs> that's yeah. definitely true so, right definitely true you know and even the, the other thing is too i was just going to say and then uh, and then i, I know we want to move on to other things but the other thing i was going to say too which was that uh the major concept i talk about in the book is that i say look when you are evaluating your recovery look at the things you don't want to recover there's things you may not want to recover you know there are things that you say you know what i hate my job i hate my job i don't want to work there anymore and since COVID's going to have me stuck here for the next three months you know what i might as well do Start finding a new job so I can find something to do. So you know what? I actually have written this in plans before where I've literally said, if the the company you are working for stops operating, you're not even gonna go back. You're just gonna resign. And we actually wrote a a resignation letter, you know, years in advance. And we actually wrote it and said, you know what? You're gonna resign, you're gonna quit. You're gonna go find some other job. You're gonna start training to do this other thing because I want you to be more successful after the disaster. That's the ultimate purpose of my book. If you were to ask me, what's a bottom line? It's I turn people and say, disaster doesn't have to be one it can be a success for you even if it means your daughter gets hooked on crochet awesome we discovered something she'll have a lifelong habit for it that's just unbelievably great the disaster then wasn't really a disaster it was actually a success and preparing for it made us more successful happier healthier etc and so that's what i tell people even season preppers i always say the one thing i'll ask you in the final solution is this is are you more successful and happy post-disaster or pre-disaster because if you're happier afterwards, that means you maximize this experience and you got made yourself better than you ever were before. So,
0: I like it. That's, that's a really good spin on how to look at a disaster situation of not focusing on the, the crappy going through it, but how you're going to come out of it better and how, what you're going to learn from it and how you're, yeah, it just give you something positive to think about versus getting all wrapped up in the negativity that everybody loves to just latch onto and, and focus on. But uh, yeah, spinning it into a like a positive uh, experience—that's fantastic.
3: Yeah, it's cool because uh, and because I know you're. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about what led me to write the book itself. I know I'm, I'm sure you're about to ask me that. Um, one of the things is that what led me to write it was because I was delivering trainings to large groups of people, and I was turning to folks, and they were, you know, how it is whenever there's a disaster presentation at work. <laughs>
0: and they're this all again. worried
3: only, it's i'm only a-
2: the, i'm only there for the donuts
3: yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly right? and people are like i'm just in it because i don't have to be at work for a shift i could just sit yeah. for an hour while this guy yaks yeah. at me and, and tells me about all the horrible yeah. things we could die of and i get to go back to work good uh but what i was doing was people would go into my trainings and literally i would have people laughing we were having a good time kind of like we are now you know and i was talking to people because i said you know what guys disasters don't have to be doom and gloom it doesn't have to be blood and guts. You know what it can be? It can be an opportunity for you to see what kind of a leader you can become, not only other people, but to yourself. Um, What can you do? And I love doing this. I do this exercise at every business because like every time I do a training, I'll run a drill afterwards. Okay. So like, well, I'll do five or six trainings in a row, different shifts. So people will be rotating in and out. Then I'll run a drill and I'll say, okay, we now have to find an incident commander. So we have to find the person who's going to be in charge of this disaster. And you know what always happens? The managers, <laughs> hands up, the managers always go, me and I go, you know what? You're sidelined. You're actually going to be victims. And the person I always pick is the person I said, who should be my incident commander? And I always look and scan. And I actually talk about this in the book. I actually the, scan the, the one, crowd. The one guy that does it. The one guy don't that's always me, like. Don't
0: pick me. Don't pick me. Don't pick me. Yeah. I
3: go, hi you come on up front because yep. oh i've only been here three days perfect I said, oh you've only worked here perfect. three days perfect <laughs> great and people are like why and i said because if your disaster plan doesn't work with the guy who's been there for three days it isn't going to work yep. with a guy who's been there for three years or three decades Yep. because every single person needs to pull and access that plan that's why it's so important and so i was doing that so often and i was speaking i was um I was on a a speaking tour i ended up getting on good Good morning america because i was talking about disaster preparedness and they and afterwards people were walking up to me going you were like really positive and this was like a happy experience you were talking about doom and gloom or (laughs) death and destruction and they said would you write a book that talks about how to prepare people um for disasters um just people who live in the modern world not necessarily people who work in in, in, not just in the rural areas but people who are in the semi-rural areas people who live in urban areas Is there some commonality because I've worked with families in all of those? I I I work with a family in Wyoming. They're living they have a ranch mill nowhere. I mean they're just by themselves. Their preparedness and the preparedness of people I do in New York City are there similarities. There are, and that's what's in the book. Is the book is the purpose? Is what I tell people is is. I believe that people are being told the wrong things in disasters by governments and by organizations. And you guys understand this far too well, which is why I'm here tonight, because I think you guys are great avatars for this. You don't ever have to experience a disaster in your entire life. That's what I tell people. You never, ever, ever have to experience one because you can design the disaster the way you want it to be. If you want it to be miserable and terrible, then be a bystander. Stand back, let other people handle it for you, right? That's when disasters occur because disasters are only what you make of them. You're the only one who can make it a disaster. But when you take responsibility, and I have a model in here I actually talk about so people can actually utilize a specific methodology, and it's not hard. It, I call it the C3 method. It's not a grandiose title, it's just simple process you go through in any disaster. And what it does is it lets you reassert control, whether it's equipment, disaster plans, whether it's drills. I talk about all these things. I talk about how to deal with the lights and sirens phase. And in the book, I talk about how to deal with recovery for the very first time. Literally, I wrote a sentence that I was talking about earlier. I call it the, um, the one sentence recovery. I literally tell people this is how you identify what you need to recover in a disaster. Then the final part is what I call reversing disaster, is what I was talking about earlier, which was getting you to be successful. Because I see so many disaster books that always say things like, oh, we're going to get struck by this or the next hurricane is going to be destructive. My book actually says, hey, you know, there's hurricanes, there's hazmat spills, there's acts of terrorism. None of those are disasters. None of them. They're not. The only way they become a disaster is if you let them. If you don't, then you can be in control of them and design the disaster the way you want to. So I wrote the book because I said, I want this to be shown to a broad audience so people can say, I can handle that too. I can become a seasoned prepper too, no matter where I live or what I do. I can put myself in a position where I can truly be in control of my own disaster response. That's why I wrote it.
0: That's awesome. I like it. I I really like that spin because everybody is always so focused on doom, gloom, woe is me, worst thing ever. It's going to be a terrible, terrible thing to go through. I like the whole spin on, no, just get through it, build better uh, on the way out and away you go. That's awesome. I really like because that everyone, view on it. Yeah,
3: because everyone's going to deal with obstacles in their life. Right? We all deal with obstacles. We all have setbacks. If I, if I were to ask yeah. you for an of you, hey, tell me what your biggest setback was. If you tell me, well, I got fired from this job, right? This happened, or, that happened. I could say, okay, how did you become stronger as a result? Because you see, mm-hmm. when I run those drills with that person in front, that random person from the back that I pull in front, when they go, oh, I can't do it, by the end of that drill, they find that they can do it. Yep. They can actually run the disaster, and then they actually go, this isn't hard at all. And I go, it's not, I'm going to put you in a place to be successful. But if you turn him into a bystander, he's a waste of time and it's not going to help him or you. So that, that's the reason why it's just just so important to do
0: that. So, yeah. Fantastic. I like it. Do we got some time for uh, Jeff's question here? It's kind of a loaded
1: question and you don't really have to answer it, but um, (laughs) what, what's, the biggest thing that's on your radar right now for what you're seeing going on in the world, and I mean, I'm, I'm looking at all kinds of things like in the MPE, are we going to go to war? Food shortages, cyber attacks, big natural disasters. What is there anything that's that's kind of in your forefront right now?
3: Right now, the biggest thing, um, as a matter of fact, I was in a drill uh, once and um, one of the things I was I was ty- I was in this training, which I have to do uh, to, for, for, for a recertification I was doing. So I was on the computer and I was typing along, you know, while I was listening to the training. And in the middle of it, without any warning, literally without any warning or anything, somebody walked up to me and slammed my laptop shut. Like when I was still typing on it, he slammed it shut on my fingers while I was still doing it and he said, close your lap he was somebody was screaming in the background close your laptops everyone close your laptops and we started closing all of our laptops and and they forced us to do it and they turned the lights off and they and and uh, we're you know everyone's disoriented and all that and he was saying um that's what will happen if there's an emp attack so i want you to think about what that would be like so what i tell people is i say do i really worry about any real disasters i actually don't worry that much but but however one of the things i do think about is is electromagnetic pulse would challenge people the most. Again, it's not something, again, guys, it doesn't have to be doom and gloom. I don't do the blood and guts thing because it doesn't have to be like that. It's the biggest challenge though to continuity. And let me explain why. Because most people will use, will make one big mistake. So for people who are hearing this, don't make this big mistake. Don't make your backups reliant on the same kind of technology or or, uh, you know, have some kind of resource requirement that if it was absent, your backups don't work. So, so for example, I had this one time. I had this guy said, okay, well, uh, you know, I have to be reliant on um, in order to get on to, uh, in order to uh, begin, continue to work, I have to have access to a laptop. So I said, okay, well, you don't have to have access to a laptop. You just have to get access to the cloud some, somehow, right? And he was saying, oh, you know, yeah. And I said, well, um, so how do you do? it? Well, I you know, I plug the computer in here. I said, well, what happens if the power goes out? He goes well. Then I, I guess I could probably use my cell phone then. And I said, well, what happens if the if your cell phone goes out? Do you have a way to charge it in your car? Do you have a way to do it? Well, I don't. I don't have any other way of doing that. That means that person is tremendously dependent on one thing. He's dependent on immediate electricity in his home. That is the biggest problem. It's not the it's not the fact there's going to be a you know a power outage. just going to be power outage just power outages everywhere. I mean, but I tell people as I say, if you're reliant on the outlet in your home. You, your primary, and your backup are now vulnerable to the same problem, right? It's when you have a diversity of things. So um, when you have those kinds of backups that sort of allow you to tap into those, now that's truly resilient because you're not relying on one particular place. Um, Bunkers are interesting because I always say if you put food in there, that's great because if something happens to your home, hey, you've got backup food somewhere else. But also think about this too. What happens if you have an emergency in your car? Like I think I tell people that if you like, I have a purse. I actually have a client I I work with. I, he has a lot of disaster supplies in his trunk because he's driving a tunnel. He drives, you know, eight hours a week, nine, nine hours a week, just on on major freeways in California. And I don't know if you guys have ever driven up and down um, California at all there. It's very, very beautiful, but California is oddly rural. If you've ever been in a lot of places in California, very rural and there's places where there's no cell phone coverage. So if you're relying on cell phone coverage to handle your emergency response, that's a big problem. Um, Eric, I don't know about you, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say, and Jeff too. Um, I carry a handheld, you were talking about the handheld. I carry a handheld, matter of fact, it's right over here. I, I have a handheld I take with me wherever I go because if I ever have a problem and I keep a list of the repeaters. Okay, there you go. I have a list of repeaters I keep, and I literally, I know it sounds weird. Hey guys, I know this is totally, um it, quote environmentally unfriendly i keep a printout of the repeaters and it's in my car so that i literally because i can't remember or memorize them you know what i mean so yep. i i know them that helps but if you're totally relying on one particular vulnerability point that's when people get in trouble that's why emps worries me so much because so many people are relying on one source electricity to do everything for it for them
0: that's a great point a backup for the yep. backup but not a backup that is the exact same um, source or, or um, same way of actually utilizing whatever it is you're trying to uh, to fix or replace it's, that's something people always overlook, there's always going to be power there's always going to be this resource available and yeah, you're not the only one I've got printouts of all the repeaters in Ontario that I carry with me in the vehicle as well they're also programmed into the radio but oh, if for whatever yeah. reason that radio uh, doesn't work anymore or something doesn't, goes funny, yeah. I always have at least two with me and uh yeah i've oh, got them nice. all i've got them printed out and yeah i'm a big radio nerd i've got what one two three four five uh six sitting here uh, but it's wow uh, <laughs> yeah a couple hfs some uh UHF vhfs a whole bunch of stuff kicking around here but yeah i, I carry well, those as well because that's oh, his well, actual I- backyard behind him
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> nice i wish nice. i wish i <laughs> wish
3: That'd be cool. So, one of the things I was reading about in the news, um, which was I was reading this article, uh, which was that there is now a lack of AM radios. They're actually removing AM radios from Mm -hmm. electric vehicles um, all over the place. And in fact, by doing that, there's important safety alerts, at least in the US. I'm sure it's true in Canada. As I said, I've never traveled enough there, but they were saying that because of that, People now don't have access to AM radios anymore. I was shocked. Wow. I couldn't believe that anybody would even think of doing that. That and and people always say, we need to go bigger, higher, more technology. I talk about that this, this, this in the book. I say ham radio operators were the ones who were allowing people to communicate post-9-11. They were yeah. the key link for Mercy Responders because you know where all the radio antennas were in downtown Manhattan for mercy responders well, what centers. towers were they on top of the trade yeah. centers soon as they were knocked out somebody said we need to get the ham operators down here because they are the only ones who can tap the repeaters that, that are farther away so they were getting yep. technicians and and general class folk to literally help them get access to these bands so that they could communicate on various radios so I tell people if you're relying on electricity for all your communication needs or to receive information you're entirely relying on Elon Musk to give that to you I think you're going to be very disappointed because now you've handed your disaster response
0: to him, right? Yeah, it's it's all about access to information, right? And quick access is better. And basic technology like AM radio, we all kind of just think, yeah, what are we going to use that for? We're not going to use it for really anything, but in an emergency situation, it might be all you've got, and it is still utilized quite uh, quite a bit here in Canada as well. Um, yeah, so they'll be phasing it out. I don't know. I uh, I don't want to get rid of my AM radio. <laughs> but well, on I'm, top I'm of radio. it, so
3: many cars now are just like power are basically co- com- computers with wheels. Yep. You know, Teslas are basically computers with wheels. I mean, if you were to have a massive EMP attack, I was actually kidding around. around, around I was actually doing a disaster plan for for a museum, and they had a they had a Model T. <laughs> As I, out there I said, you know what, guys, if we have a massive EMP attack, that will be the best car mm-hmm. on the market. Yep. If you have a yep. massive EMP, if we, if we go electric, vehicle, no, not saying against electric vehicles, but I'm simply saying, if you are relying on a computer to handle everything for you, you're driving and all that, what happens if that goes out? Now you're in real trouble. So yep. that's why the AM, AM radio thing, I was shocked when I heard that. I had a couple of ham friends tell me that, and I was reading about it online, couldn't believe it that that that's a bad because that's a big deal because you 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 lose access to that if you don't have your cell phone now what do you got
0: i mean what do you have nothing nothing really no that's awesome Uh, any other questions panelists live chat anything you want to throw in patrick that we haven't touched on yet
3: Well, if there's no questions, there's one last thing I wanted to say to everybody. I wanted to share with everyone. I know we went a little over here. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. I'll definitely stick around for the rest of the show. Um, I was just going to say this too. Um, In the end, everyone, I I want you to recognize that you can live in harmony with disasters. Uh, Chapter 15 of my my book, I talk about a tribe in Indonesia, and they have a really interesting philosophy. They, They live at the base of a volcano. That volcano is an active volcano. It erupts every five to eight years. And the indonesian authorities um they were really worried about them so the indonesian emergency management authority uh went out to the tribe and said to them hey listen if you would like us to evacuate you and move you to another location long term to make you more resilient please tell us and we will do that and they already gave, they gave them a new place to live and they they say it's all prepared for you and the villagers refused and in mercy management, where the authorities were like, "Why wouldn't you wanna? Why wouldn't you wanna get away from the, the uh, volcano?" And they said, "Because we live in harmony with it. We live in harmony with the volcanic eruption. The volcano actually helps us." And they said, "How?" And they said, "Because when the volcano spews out ash, that is what fertilizes our crops. That's why we don't have to do crop rotation. When we have a magma flow, it destroys all the parts of the village." that we can't destroy ourselves it helps to defoliate areas of the jungle that we don't have the ability to cut down on our own mother nature does it in a safe productive way because then the jungle will then rebuild itself and so when you are talking about what you guys are dealing with um, in this quote age of disasters i want to sort of leave you with this which is if you live in harmony with disasters don't fight them don't panic against them don't don't try to battle against the disasters. If you live in harmony with it and say, this is a challenge that I can overcome, that's how you really design the disaster instead of having the disaster be designed for you.
0: Awesome. That's a fantastic way of looking at things. Awesome. Thanks again, Patrick. I really, really enjoyed this chat. It's been some really, really good, useful information that I'm sure our listeners are going to uh, enjoy quite um, quite thoroughly. The ones that have watched live and the ones that are going to uh, listen to this in audio format uh, in the coming week, I'm sure are going to uh, have a lot more positive outlook on disasters and preparedness, and I, I hope that they uh, have a second look over their uh, the preparedness plan and grab a copy of your book. Uh, for those that are watching and those that are listening, I have put a copy of, uh, or a, a link to the the book in the live chat here. Patrick's holding up a a copy of it now so you can see what the front cover looks like. And I'll put a, a link in the show notes as well for the audio listeners. So make sure you check out the uh, the show notes section and your podcast player there and uh, grab the link and check it out. It's uh, it's a reasonable $40 on Amazon Canada. So uh, absolutely check it out and grab a copy. Uh, with that, we will move into the podcast challenge. So your challenge for this episode is review your preparedness plan update and realign it as required and of course grab a copy of patrick's book uh, design any disaster it's a uh, like i said it's on uh, amazon i've got the link in the notes now and it's going to be released uh tuesday march the 7th Uh, upcoming events we've got the annual preppers meet coming up it is uh, still july the 6th to the 9th 2023 Location is same as last year, Desborough, Ontario. Early bird tickets are going on sale April the 2nd. So uh, check out com. they'll uh, they'll get the ticket sales going there uh, shortly. And as always, fantastic couple of days with like-minded individuals. Um, everybody's friendly, chatty, willing to share all of their knowledge and experience with uh, seasoned pros and absolute beginners. So make sure you come out and check it out. Uh, last year there was even a food truck, which I know is contrary to being prepared for emergency, uh, emergency situations, but It was good food and can't complain about that. Not if you brought
2: a brick, not if you brought a silver coin with you because you can get a good
0: tin. Ah, this is true. Uh (laughs) All right, Jeff, we got your weather blurb.
1: Sure, we do. So, a couple episodes ago, I uh, talked about the the breakup of the polar vortex uh, and it did occur and there were some immediate uh, results from it for cold weather, but Uh, The more long-term results are going to start appearing within the next uh, several weeks. Uh, Most models are showing a significant cooling uh, for the middle and southern portion of the U.S. Uh, That also means that there could be an alignment of the polar jet. And uh, if that occurs, uh, there's the potential that this colder air may lead to a storm path that basically runs across the uh, upper Midwest of the U.S., through the Great Lakes and into the upper eastern U.S. and um, the Maritimes. Uh, These models um, obviously are models. They could vary. It's difficult to predict weeks in advance. But basically, if this path holds, some areas could see more snow in the next three to four weeks than they've seen all winter. Um, It's been a bad winter. There hasn't been a lot of storms. There hasn't been a lot of snow. Um, So to say that they're going to see that much snow is Take it for what it's worth. Um, there is a, a guy I follow uh, quite frequently for weather and stuff. I've put a couple links in for, he just puts up some photos of where he believes the, uh, the weather and the snow is going to fall. So um, in the longer term, uh, we're talking a four to six week window from now. Um, the cold air is probably going to start to break. It's going to be spring and we're going to see a return to warmer air. And that is going to cause a, uh, some significant, uh, or potential for significant, uh, severe weather. The clash of the two, uh, temperature fronts, you've got the cold front, you've got the warm front coming up from the Gulf full of, um, the, um, the moisture and all that lays out a, uh, a good plan for, for severe weather. Um, there are some folks and don't, don't everybody panic all over this. There are some folks talking about, um, pointing to the, uh, there was a very large tornado outbreak that happened, uh, April 3rd and 4th of 1974 and the similarities to the weather then to the weather now are, are pretty alarming. They're, they're kind of mirroring each other. And, um, I mean that, um, that storm produced, uh, 148 tornadoes, uh, throughout, uh, 13 states in Canada within a 16 hour window. Um, 30 of those uh, tornadoes were considered violent. Five, or sorry, six of them were rated as an F5. Uh, 300 people were killed. Over 5,000 were injured. Uh, the damage at the time was uh, $1.5 You put that into today's dollars and you're probably looking at about $4 billion worth of damage. Um, again, is this going to happen? Nobody knows. The the potential's there. Like I said, you got that really cold weather. Then you get the sudden rush of warm, moist air. You get the squall lines, and and that stuff happens. Just just be paying attention. Be prepared. Um, and that's
2: hopefully it. The, hope, hopefully, Patrick's book gets dropped off before this happens.
0: Yeah. So you plan <laughs>
1: accordingly.
0: Yeah. I just put my pre order in, so
1: hopefully. Yeah. So did I. Thank you, gentlemen. Awesome.
0: All right, deal of the week. So uh Cabela's gets the deal of the week this week. Uh Mr. Heater Buddy portable heaters are on sale. They're hundred and nineteen ninety nine, uh, regular one forty-nine ninety nine. So uh, check those out because old man winter is still kicking around. All right, uh any panelists uh-huh. any shout outs for this week? Well, I'll definitely shout out
1: Patrick for coming on. It's uh Really, really uh, tons of good information. I'm really looking forward to having a look at that book for sure.
0: Same here. Yeah, thanks a lot, Patrick, for coming out yeah. and sharing your knowledge with us and uh, and for writing this book. It, it sounds like it's going to be a fantastic resource for the emergency preparedness community. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm as well looking forward to uh, having it show up here in the mail and, and having to flip through it.
3: Thank, thank you all very much. And I'm definitely excited. And, um, you know, if you ever, if you ever need a guest, come back on, I would love to, I'd love to talk, we'll talk. I got so many stories about small businesses and crazy families, all kinds of kinds of stuff. So if you ever need kind of a, uh, you want a, a little bit of injection of extra humor,
0: uh, you, you know where to go, you know, where to find me. You're welcome to come back anytime you'd like, Patrick. We record every Sunday, nine o'clock Eastern uh, PM, any episode you want to come and chat on more than welcome. Just pop in, just hang out chat about preparedness you just let us know we'll keep you on the mailing list for the show notes then you know what we're talking about each week uh,
3: yeah i'm gonna go ahead and buy a shirt and a patch that and, and i'll start wearing
0: those from now on awesome i'll <laughs> do you one better i'll send you i'll just send it to you love it man. awesome it. well with that i will bring episode number 197 of the canadian prepper podcast to an end you can find the podcast on itunes podbean spotify or of course your favorite podcast app Uh, Please help us out. Submit a review. It does help other people find us.
1: And we do record these shows live on Facebook and YouTube. So if you want an early peek at the shows, please subscribe to the YouTube channel, Canadian Prepper Podcast, and click on the notifications tab. Uh, It gives you an alert when we are going live. Uh, You can contact me at feedback at prepperpodcast.ca or I am frequently on our Discord channel.
2: You can find me off the wall customizing on all the socialist medias or at Gmail. Um, I have a thing on Discord, but like, send me a personal message. I don't go on there often. I still got to make a t-shirt for someone. Um, or you can find me on Monday nights where I talk about why I am a government critique with a lot more whiskey
0: <laughs>
2: on uh, the Canadian Patriot podcast <laughs> on YouTube at 9 o'clock.
0: And hey, Where can everybody find you, Patrick?
3: Well, you can uh, find me at AmericasDisasterPlanner.com. Uh, so some, someday I'm going to be called Canadian. I, I would say I was, I would say I was uh, Canada's disaster planner, but that's really you guys. But but uh, I'll, I'll just stick with the lower the lower fifty. So um, but I'm on AmericasDisasterPlanner.com, and I got a brand new site going live on June 1st. I hope I can come back on the show because I got an incredible incredible drill i think you guys are going to love it it's going to be a massive drill we're going to be running near near uh the bay area of california and i would love to come back and promote that we're going to do it live on social media there will be drones it'll be social media it's going to be run in a way that has been unlike any disaster drill ever run before so i would look forward to coming back awesome. and talking all about it you'd love it
0: awesome yeah let's get you scheduled up for uh, for that whether you want to do it before or after during Let me know. We'll get you on and we'll get you on for all three times, whatever, uh, whatever works for you to to get that promoted. That's awesome. Love it. Thank you. Yep. All right. Well, with that, uh, like I said, we'll bring the uh, episode 197 to an end. Uh, You can check me out at rapidsurvival.com and get me there on the live chat while buying some Prepper gear. Uh, You can also email me at feedback at prepperpodcast.ca. So uh, thanks for joining us this evening. Until next time, be prepared, stay safe and keep learning